Trinity Sunday. Uh, so we need to say some things about the, the Holy Trinity. And I thought before I get deep into that, uh, I want to do some recapitulation because, as you know, I'm very fond of the term, the word <laughs> recapitulation. I like to use it every opportunity. But we had the Feast of Pentecost, the, the, the Feast of Pentecost, the capstone of the great 50 days of Easter. And in that period, we have established in that particular season of the church year all of the liturgical, theological, spiritual predicates for the rest of the church year. And so it's important to know some things in advance before we come to talking about the Trinity in some form or another. And I think I, I, that's why I want to say these things. Remember that the worship of the church precedes, uh, is prior to all of the doctrinal formulations about what we believe to be true about God and Jesus. You know, we have the Latin maxim we use in, in our tradition as Anglican Christians. It's in Latin, I think, because Dr. McNeil said to me, well, it came from the Roman period, which is lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of prayer is the law of belief. So when we begin to talk about things like the Trinity and some of the other doctrinal ways of understanding uh, the Christian mystery, something about how our worship has informed this understanding is important. In other words, the Trinity flowed from the pastoral realities of the life of the church in some ways. So we need to think a little bit about that. Father Thomas Keating said, uh, and I use this all throughout the great 50 days of Easter, every time we come to the liturgy, we encounter three great theological ideas. The light of God, the life of God and the love of God. And in some sense, there's a Trinitarian aspect to that, isn't there? Because there's three of them. We like to talk about things in threes. But I mention this because the light of God is the illuminative processes involved in the way in which we as Episcopalians understand what is true in our threefold test of the Bible, the tradition with a capital T and our human reason and experience. And so the light of God represents God's illuminative process operating in the community and in the hearts of all faithful people. And that can be understood and appropriated in a concrete way by seeing the light of God as the practical wisdom that we acquire as we live our lives together in relationship and as we seek to know God's will and purpose for us and move in some way toward health and wholeness in our relational life, we may be able to understand something about the relational aspect of the Godhead that we now have explained as God as Trinity. So the light of God represents the ability that you and I have to cultivate wisdom, not just religious wisdom, but the practical wisdom about how to live, how to commend it to others, and how to be open to hear it from others in terms of what they have learned by their own reason and experience and desire to appropriate the deep things of Christian faith and belief and what it means to be the best human being that you can be. So in some ways, the light of God brings us one 
aspect of the nature of God, and we encounter a bit the liturgy too. We then encounter the life of God, which is the empowerment that all Christian people receive as they live their lives faithfully. And so God's life is something that we participate in in a number of ways. God's presence to the community of faith is plural, and so that means that in the worship of the church, God's life, God's power comes to us as Episcopalians, as Catholics, through the sacramental system. And in some ways we encounter this uh, on a regular basis in that way, in that process. So we encounter the life of God. And finally, the love of God is the ability to be transformed that we know that as we receive the unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness of God, in some way now that gives us the power to become more fully what God wants us to be, or to put it another way, to become what we already are, but in a way that we can perhaps more palpably understand it and own it and know it. So it is something that, uh, you know, most of us know a lot of things that we don't think we know, and then we know them for a while, and then not anymore, right? <laughs> so that's how, that's how this works, this process works. And so if you were going to, you know, a big cheese theologian like John Macquarie would say the Holy Trinity represents three ways of talking about being, you know, being, right? God the Father is primordial being. Maybe like in us, memory. Or the cosmos. Dun, is, right? Thought thinking itself. God as Jesus is expressive being. So those who followed him began to say, we've come out of a monotheistic tradition and we believe that there is one God, but here's a guy, I'm gonna read a, a quote to you in a minute from another Anglican theologian. Here's someone who is a human being and is expressing these divine characteristics that we see in a human person. If God were a human being walking around on the earth, this is who he'd be like. And finally, the Holy Spirit of God is unitive being, the spirit that is within each of us, that is part of our true self, the spirit that is imparted to us at our baptism, the infused theological virtues that we receive of faith, hope, and love are those things that, in, that allow us now to be faithful missionaries according to the Book of Common Prayer, which is to, to uh, the mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other. So the process of reconciliation, the process of connection, the process of the intensification and the bringing of health to relationship has some sort of a Trinitarian quality to it. There's a theologian, an English theologian, who it will probably be one of the only or last times I will ever read a quotation to you from him because he comes from a part of the Anglican Church that I find let's say, not congenial. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Dr. John Stott. He was for many years the rector of All Souls Church Langham Place in London, which was in the old churchmanship days, Snake Belly Low. <laughs> In other words, you had to look up to see bottom, right? <laughs> Here's what he said about the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is not a peculiar theory invented by unpractical theologians. It is an attempt to put into words a truth that God revealed in the facts of history. The apostles were Jews who had been brought up to believe in God, the creator of the world, and the Holy One of Israel. Then they met Jesus, and as they lived with him, they came to realize that he was no mere man. He was divine, yet he was not himself the Father, for he used to pray to the Father. Then he started telling them of someone else who he called the Spirit of Truth and the Comforter who would come and take his place when he had gone. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit did come with the fullness of divine power. So it was the pressure of their own experience that forced the apostles to believe in the Trinity. Now, I want to uh, pause here for a minute and say something that I might should have said at the beginning, and you've heard me say before. Um, you know, I used to worry about repeating myself. I just don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> if it's important to say, or I think it's important to say, then I'm going to say it and just take the risk of saying, oh, well, what else is new? <laughs> I agree with the, with the recently retired dean of Grace Cathedral, Alan Jones, who said that, you know, Episcopalians are concerned more about belonging than they are about believing. So some of the things that I'm going to say about the Trinity subsequent to this, uh, and what I've said prior to just saying this, is that you and I don't have to believe in toto all of the abstruse reflections about the nature of God as Trinity. It is fair to say that the doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely at the heart of our self-understanding as Christian people, as orthodox Christian people. That's a word we don't use a lot here because it's so freighted these days. But the truth of the matter is that the Trinitarian view is the most useful way to explain how God operates in the historical understanding of the tradition with a capital T and how we perceive our own internal emotional and spiritual and mental state with regard to how God works in our lives. The Trinity is useful. Dr. Uh, Michael Ramsey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, about three or four Archbishops of Canterbury ago, I had the privilege to know him and, and uh, meet him on more than one occasion. The first time I heard him preach, I was uh, about 20 or 21, 20. And he was at Grace Cathedral, and it was when Bishop James Pike was the Bishop of California, who was somewhat controversial in his theological views, and sat rather lightly on the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. And while people who criticized him probably didn't carefully read what he was saying and therefore be able to see what, where the conversation was going, it was clear that 
Bishop Pike was a little bit uh, um, easygoing about this. And I can remember at the sermon, the Archbishop of Canterbury was in the pulpit at Grace Cathedral, and Bishop Pike was sitting way back in the old Episcopal throne that the Redwood Association of California gave Grace Cathedral. <laughs> the ugliest darn thing. <laughs> so he was slouching in this little thing in the back. And at this point in the sermon, the Archbishop of Canterbury said, and after all, the Trinity is not an embarrassment to Christianity, and then turned and looked straight back <laughs> at Bishop Pike. And have you ever watched anybody who kind of gets small in their body? <laughs> well, I agree with Michael Ramsey. You know, the Trinity is not an embarrassment to Christianity. A lot of people want to make it so because it's, you know, awfully can get easy. Right? When I was a young priest in Tucson, Arizona, there was a, we had a lot of scientists from the University of Arizona, most of them astronomers, optic uh, scientists for the telescopes, and uh, physicists, theoretical physicists. And one of them was a, a, a guy named John Xie, in Chinese Xie, I think is how he said it. He was one of the world experts on interstellar Space, the space between stars, okay? So he was an LEM, you know, like Patrick or Pat Brad. Or, and he was in the sacristy putting his vestments on one Sunday, and he said, I don't know what prompted me. He turned to me and he said, you know, David, he said, I have, as a, as a physicist, I have absolutely no difficulty with the doctrine of Trinity at all. At all. And he said, I know exactly what they're driving at here. I said, well, if you do. <laughs> Help me out on it. <laughs> you know. But he was a he was a real believer and he said that's it's not a cloud cuckoo land idea. Now, just a couple of sort of things. We don't have any explicit biblical references to God as Trinity, but they're sort of implicit in some of the biblical text. And from the Old Testament reading you heard today from Isaiah, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, you have this sort of Trinitarian something there in the Hebrew Bible. That piece in Isaiah is, uh, was taken over and made as part of the synagogue liturgy and the practice of Judaism. And we as Christian people took that over from the synagogue liturgy as one of the things that has stayed with us as part of that inheritance. So, holy, holy, holy. We didn't read today. We do in one of the cycles from Matthew's Gospel. Go therefore into the world, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and know that I am with you always, even unto the end of the ages. So that tells us at the very least that Matthew, 85 A.D. to 90, maybe 75 to 85 A.D., a former rabbi writing the Gospel, is describing in some way, if they're not the precise words of Jesus, that the community out of which Matthew's gospel came is describing an understanding of God as Trinity, as having three aspects. So we know that it is not explicit in the Bible, but it is certainly implicit in the Bible. And as people went on in their own practice of Christian faith and life, that is to say, through their own personal worship and prayer, and began to write about it, 
so that other Christians could read, not in the biblical witness, but the other subsequent writers and theologians, they began to say, you know what, if I think about myself, I realize that I'm a Trinitarian personality. And more to the point, I have come through my own prayer, through my own participation in the public liturgy of the church, to have some idea that the internal processes of God have this kind of plural activity, even though it's in one person. Remember, the word person in the ancient Greek understanding is a different thing than what we understand person to mean. So there's some aspects there that require abstruse writing and reflecting. We don't need to worry about that. It's like, you know, I can run my computer and I don't have to know how it works. I don't want to know how the stereo works. I just want to turn it on and have it work, right? Unfortunately, with computers, we're not quite there where we'd like to be in that. <laughs> but we d I don't need to know it. I don't need the ones and the zeros to do that. Other people can do the ones and the zeros. I just want to plug it in and, and then I'm ready. Okay? So that's true about the Trinity. But experientially, they began to say, you know, I have certain qualities within me, like a memory, a reason, and a will, some sort of uh, relational life internally to myself. And in fact, what I have discovered is that as I seek to unite myself in harmony with God, my own internal states can become uh, what I believe through faith is true about the internal states of God, that God is a community. And that God in some way has fellowship with God's self. What would that mean in our own lives? It would mean that you and I have the ability to uh, have hold of our personal demons. It means that we can remain non-anxious in the face of the anxiousness and reactivity of other people. It means that we can develop the interior self-regulation and strength to meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of us. It means that we can have self-regulation of instinctual drives that are natural but need to be controlled in order for us to be productive and effective people, emotionally, relationally, physically, and mentally. So if we see this, then they began to say, well, if we're having a conversation about what God is like, God may be a koinonia, a community, or in communion. Koinonia in Greek means, you've maybe heard this word, it means community, which is the way we use it mostly, a fellowship, but it also means communion. Everything firing on all eights. The timing's right, everything's going. So they began to say, this is the only reasonable way that I can describe the mystery of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and having in some way these different expressions and qualities. It's very risky to do this, but you know, for years, people in Sunday school and so on would say, well, you know, water has three states, liquid, Right? And, you know, not quite the best thing, but it might work, you know? So then you get down into what's true? 
the liquid is the solid, <laughs> not the water, is the liquid God that's and spirit steam. It just fits like a hand in a glove, right? <laughs> but that may be a useful way to uh, talk about this for some, certainly for, for children and for young, for, for, for most of us. However, you know, most of us uh, are greatly benefited by uh, some of the spirituality of children in ways that we um, often don't account. So I would guess that the lesson for this week is to uh, understand that um, you can continue to focus on belonging and not believing as the first principle. That's what the whole, one of the whole big deals in the Episcopal Church is now. There are a lot of Episcopalians out there who say, now you've got to believe this right before you belong. And here's the checklist that we have developed for you. <laughs> Once you have it and look through it and make these checks, <laughs> then you can belong, you know. I don't know why it popped into my head because it really doesn't relate, but it's like the New Yorker cartoon years ago where the banker is sitting at the desk and the guy's there with his hat on his lap and he says, why, of course, Mr. Ludlow, we have mortgage money from heaven, but you can't have any. <laughs> <laughs> or, we may make unwise loans to foreign countries, Mr. Smith, but I can assure you that we never make unwise loans to individuals. <laughs> <clears throat> Maybe that's more apposite uh, uh, these days than it might be. It's a little dated. It's a little dated, that's right. So think about uh, belonging versus believing. And you know what happens? My experience as a pastor is this. Most people who are feeling their way along are not sure or have come in this kind of reluctantly and worried about having a, a big bunch of stuff either they don't understand or agree with loaded on them. As they begin to uh, become faithful and to allow the processes of, of worship and community life to work, they, their outlook becomes more orthodox, not less. That has been usually my experience. Not in the uptight, we have the check box for you, but in a sure, steady understanding that the deep things of Christian faith and belief that have been brought to us by the tradition with a capital T, are after all useful expressions of how we talk about God. So see to this week also if you can identify the Trinitarian aspects of your own character, you know, and what it is about you that makes you kind of a, a Trinitarian. Father Keating would say the Trinitarian aspect of ourselves is our true self. We are not God, but our true self is God. Amen. Cafe.